cliffcentral.com. Well, indeed, uh, cliffcentral.com on a Thursday morning means one thing and one thing only. It's time for us to get stuck into some current affairs, some of the big stories of the week, some of the political, economic, social shenanigans that we need to pay attention to. It hopefully will be your dose of all of that in a convenient, easy-to-eat helping, which is the way we try and serve it up every week. And, of course, it's brought to you, speaking of helpings, by Nando's, who are not afraid to get extra hot, which is usually what we do. And I have no doubt that this morning it's going to get extra hot because we're joined by, as always, Pumi Mashiho and by Gareth van Onselen, who's uh, always writing the most um, interesting stuff. And you can find all of Gareth's stuff in a number of publications. But this morning, I just want to quickly introduce him to those of you who may not be paying attention, who may not know. Gareth van Onselen is stepping up uh, and firing us up this morning with uh, the burning platform. He uh, studied at Vitz. I'm not going to go through your whole thing. Don't worry, Gareth. I, I, I can see already you, you're starting to glaze over. I hate it when people do long introductions with me, but it's important, I suppose. He's, he's got a master's degree in sociology. He entered the world of politics in 2001, and until 2012, he worked for the DA in various capacities, much of, most of which involved communications and political analysis. He's then worked for the Sunday Times as a senior reporter, the Institute of Race Relations as head of politics, before joining market research company Victory Research as its CEO in 2019. He writes a weekly column for Business Live and sometimes for Business Day, and he's been doing that since 2010. He calls himself a liberal, a humanist, and a published author. Well, we can call him a published author too. But most of all, he's a political animal with a deep love for Ideas, statistics, and arguments. In other words, exactly the kind of person we want on this show. So, Gareth, first of all, welcome back. We haven't seen you in a while. How are you? Thank you. Yeah, I'm good. It's a bit early for me, but it's good to be here. <laughs> Listen, you wrote an article this week which has got everybody talking. Um, and I know that you probably wanted to be provocative with this title, but it's something people may have thought about in 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 the last couple of years this is amazing your your column this week is about how many people the anc has killed now i mean when you when you say something like that it's bound to make people go what what are you talking about um how how did this come about and tell us about the 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 thrust of this article of course we want people to read it as well so don't give everything away yeah well the idea behind it is um essentially i mean you know we're a land of statistics, and um, most of them seem to revolve around corruption, as far as I can tell. Uh, huge resources are put into sort of quantifying the extent of the decay, um, and rightfully so. It's a big problem. Hmm. But it seems to me that on the kind of moral outrage scale, uh, a bigger, more primary problem is is death. Um, the number of people that have actually died as a consequence of poor administration or bad policy or negligence or incompetence or whatever it is. <clears throat> and if you look back over the last 27 years, it seems to me that that's a significant number of people would have died in that way. Not just in, um, you know, there's some incidents are, are things you can directly link to the ANC, things like life acidemedi or, or Marikana or sure. denying HIV AIDS. HIV causes AIDS. Um, they're more intangible links, you know, who's in control of the murder rate and, and, poor public health care and that kind of thing. But I think there's a number. There's a number at the bottom of this, and, and in other democracies, someone would have come up with it. And, and I think it's an interesting exercise for someone involved in stats or a young upcoming student to put their mind to it and try to determine how many people have died under the ANC. I think well, it's important that we know. Well, you say in, in the opening, death for the ANC is nothing personal. It's just a byproduct of the South African situation, of history or inequality, but never of policy. It has nothing to do with the ANC. Death is something, something that happens to other people. Now, I'm sure that you wouldn't have just put this column together because you needed to write something. You've probably done some of the preliminary stuff, and you've probably gathered as much of the statistical data as you could and the evidence that you could to make that number, to quantify that number. Um, but but obviously this this is a huge task because – a lot of this will be swept under the carpet. A lot of it is is not necessarily directly linked, as you said. So, how do we actually account for it? And and did you manage to get close to any number for how many people the ANC has killed since, <clears throat> since it's become the government? I, I wish I wish I had, because I, I mean, I really think that number would be dynamite. But I mean, the truth is, I haven't actually done anything. And and as you intimated, it's, it's a difficult 
thing to do. You can't just, I mean, if you're serious about it, if you want a credible number, you need a proper methodology that, that explains where the numbers come from and why you've included and excluded certain numbers. Um, but I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you, if, Josh, I shouldn't guess a number. It'll get me to all sorts of trouble, but a very big number. I mean, I would think it would be very big. Okay. Uh, Pums, do you, do you think that it's possible to even calculate the, the, the kinds of things? Because we were talking, Pumi and I were just at the beginning of the show this morning. She watched that documentary on Amazon about the one-child policy in China and, you know, the kind of social engineering that has been wrought in China and, and the, 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 the consequences of that that weren't predictable, even to the Chinese government who've really treated people as numbers. They'd probably be able to give you the number for the ANC even because that's the kind of thing they're obsessed with in, in the Chinese Communist Party. But it is, it's frightening to me to think, to think about the, the unintended consequences of policy and the unintended consequences in this country of, of not blaming policy because we really don't, Gareth. It's, it seems to me that the politicians get a free pass. There's still no one, as far as I can tell, who's gone to jail for life estimany. And, and, and that happened how long ago? You know, and I think I'm, I, I'm quite interested in and I, and I saw the article and, I, and it made me wonder if, and Gareth, you're probably the best place person to have this conversation as a sociology major yourself, is South, the South African psyche of how we hold people accountable. Because another story that's in the news this week is, is the, the failed, um, Attempt at stay of prosecution for the killers of Ahmed Timar, right? South Africans, we just don't hold account. We don't hold people accountable, even in instances where we know that atrocities have been committed. We, we're just ready to move on. We're ready to move on. We've never had any kind of accountability other than Dr. Death, you know, Voto Basad. We've never really had any kind of accountability, even in our history of people who have done atrocious things. Mm. So is this, is, you know, is it an anomaly for the ANC or is it just simply the way that we are as South Africans? And, and just before you even answer that, Gareth, I mean, the, the worst part of what Pumi's saying is that it seems the more egregious your crime, the easier it is to get off. You know, the more corrupt, the more terrible you are, the more you're given a free pass. It's ordinary people who get locked up, you know, for... Uh, domestic issues or for, um, for, for, for inter, in, intrafamilial stuff. It seems that the politicians just, they get, they just like Teflon go straight through the system. Yeah, look, there are a number of important points there. And I think the answer is actually quite complex. Um, yes, we, we do have an accountability problem or a, a lack of accountability problem. Um, and there are a lot of reasons for that. The, the governing party's attitude to accountability is one of them. Um, and, and as ever, public expectations, I think, are a, are a contributing factor. By that, I mean, South Africa's only learned recently, um, the full value of accountability. In other words, it's not just an explanation for what you did as wrong, but there must be consequences attached to that explanation depending on its veracity. Um, and I think it's only in the Zuma years that South Africa's really started to learn and demand the consequence part of the thing. Up to that point, we seemed to happy with just explanations, certainly through the Mbeki years. Um, and public, the public actually drives accountability to a large degree in this way. So the things that the public is worked up about translate into pressure, and, and, and that's the kind of things that politicians start to take seriously. I mean, it's one of the reasons why corruption, I think, is at the top of the agenda, even for the ANC. We don't seem to get that worked up about death, remarkably, I mean, life as he to me is largely forgotten. Yeah. We've moved on from it. Yeah. I mean, it's shocking tragedy. HIV AIDS, I mean, Becky was denied or one of the arguments from those people that decide the Mo Ibrahim award for, you know, outgoing presidents in Africa, this huge sum of 10 million US dollars was that he had effectively committed some kind of domestic genocide through his HIV AIDS denial. Now he's back in politics discussing their headlines. Oh, is Mbeki back in politics and stuff? No reference to his past history. Even Cyril Ramaphosa, I mean, Julius Malema and Floyd Chivambu notoriously said when he was first elected, you know, you've got blood on your hands. You're a murderer. They were kicked out the National Assembly for saying that. Mm -hmm. Now, whether he is or he isn't, they believed it, but no longer an issue. He was a murderer for a week or two. Now he's someone else, you know. 
And we, death just, we have this kind of fatalistic attitude to it. There is just something out there. We don't get too worked up about it. Um, and, and thus there aren't those sort of consequences for it. But, but you say that. And then I look at what's going on with, um, with a lockdown and, you know, the president assuring us that it's government's primary objective to keep us all safe from this virus. And they shut down the entire economy and they, they, they put everything on hold. And, and yet, you know, for those 50, 60,000 people who've died from coronavirus, it seems that they've got more attention from the ANC in the last two years than all the, the, the many millions of people who you mentioned in terms of HIV AIDS, whose lives were cut short because we didn't want to, to bring in antiretrovirals in time or because of Marikana, as you, you rightly point out, where people were just in cold blood shot by the police. We don't even know the, the numbers of how many people are are dying today because there are no good policies when it comes to helping people find houses, running water, electricity. Poverty kills people too, but they don't seem to, to call, call a lockdown on South Africa to deal with poverty, for example. No, look, I mean, I, I would say that kind of makes my point because what, one of the things that the, you know, COVID-19 has done is, is bring death home in, in a real way. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a possibility that it's, you know, everyone sort of knows someone, whether it's an extended family member or a friend who's either got COVID or, or has died from it or had a really horrific experience with it. And so it's far more real and tangible for a lot of people than death normally is. And so people care much more about it. And, you know, public pressure on, on COVID is, is extremely big on the government. Not that the government, I think, has been in any way satisfactory in, in its response to that pressure, but mm. Uh, it's one of the reasons why people care, at least in a COVID bubble, as you point out, they don't right. care about poverty in the same no. kind of way, about death no, at no, the moment. I can't think of anything that's got as much, think- as got, got as much attention as, as COVID has for the deaths that it's, it's caused. It's just unbelievable to me. And it did show you for a little while that government can switch certain things on and off if they feel there's an emergency. But it showed you that they can actually enact certain uh, policies which they believe in in the case of COVID would keep us safe, but it seems there's no political desire to do that for anything else. Well, they can do it in one direction. That's to to shut things down. We've yet to yeah, see evidence correct. that they can do it in the other direction. Ramp it up. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, certainly but they can be authoritarian is, if they want. The, the, but do you think that this is is also an indication of our society maturing? You know, you, you talk about how the, the accountability, society's understanding of accountability shifting from just, okay, there's an explanation to somebody's got to be in over, orange overalls is also an indication of our society maturing. We come from society we've never heard anything. You know, you, you may have seen stuff happening, but nobody, the government wasn't saying anything, wasn't mm. telling people anything, wasn't saying this is what's mm. happening. So people didn't even know to a large extent. So other people were experiencing it. Most of the people did not. And then we went, we got to a place where when our, when our government kind of changed and became a government for the people, we were then, we told stuff, we knew stuff, but there was still no real accountability. And we've now morphed into a society where it's not just, it's not enough to tell us. We, we want to know what's happening. We want to know what's happened to it. What's the cost of it and who's being held accountable. Is this a maturing society? Is our democracy perhaps maybe maturing to that place where we will get to a place eventually someday soon, hopefully, where people do get held accountable? Yes. Well, look, that's a very important question. Um, I mean, I think undoubtedly we have matured in some ways. I think the ultimate test of a of a democracy is is a change in power at national level, and so that's a test we've yet to pass or, or even experience. Um, but I think there are a lot of signs, particularly with regards to, the, to ideas like accountability, that we have learned something and we are getting better at democracy. Basically, mm. you know, there are a number of key words and phrases which underpin a lot of democratic and constitutional behavior. And the way in which we understand them says a lot about us as a society. I mean, take the word consultation, for example. It's a very important word. It's actually in the Constitution. I mean, the, right. the president has to consult the leaders of all minority parties before he appoints someone to the constitutional court, for example. Right. So what does constitution, what does consultation mean? 
And for the ANC, I think it means literally just informing someone of your decision. And so what you'll find, certainly historically, is, is the day before an appointment is to be made to the constitutional court, a letter is sent to the leaders of the opposition parties informing them this is my candidate. There's no room to actually change his mind, which is really the democratic point of consultation. If you're genuinely interested in consultation, you should have an open, or at least the possibility that your mind can be changed by a better argument should be uh, available to you if you're consulting openly and honestly. There are lots of words like this that punctuate South Africans' democratic lexicon, which we haven't had a proper con- uh, conversation about what they actually mm. mean. Some of them we've learned like accountability in a brutal fashion that, geez, we really do need consequences, otherwise nothing's going to happen. Other ones we're still exploring. We haven't quite yet determined how they work or, or what's best. I, I so want the to... thing about, you know, you bring up the thing about consultation. That then, on the flip side, means that we need on the opposition side, strong individuals and thinking individuals who are able to to hold that <laughs> that government accountable and demand it for the people that they represent. You know, that's why we have a proportional representation even in Parliament. That's the point of it, that we will have some kind of consultation and that those individuals will actually stand up and and make the points for the can, people that they represent. Can I just, but we can, don't really... Can I go from the sublime to the ridiculous and, and just point out that when it comes to accountability, we rely quite heavily on our fourth estate in South Africa, and we rely on the media, and the media at the moment are going through a, a crisis of confidence because I don't think people have as much trust in the media as, they've, as they used to have. I don't think people believe very much of what they see in the news anymore. Uh, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about Pete Rampetti and Pums. I know we've discussed this as a joke this morning, uh, the, the, the decaplets. But what this has revealed to many people is just because you own what was once a credible newspaper brand and just because you have the masthead of what should be a credible music uh, news brand doesn't mean that you're actually delivering news. And in the case of, of the clickbait story around these decaplets, what it's done is it's further uh, made the media uh, made a mockery of the media and and removed what little credibility was left there. Now, obviously, there are publications which are better, and there are publications that are worse. But I I see like News Twenty Four publishing their own story about News Twenty Four being the most trusted South African news source for a third consecutive year. I mean, when I see stuff like that, let me just see if you can get this in here. I don't think you can see it oh, properly. Yes. But there's News Twenty Four reporting on themselves being the yeah, most trusted. Shiny. You know. Do me a favor, really. Let's all have a circle jerk over how great we are. This is the kind of thing. This is the kind of thing that ordinary people are starting to get extremely cynical about. Well, <clears throat> it's another interesting area where I think we've matured a bit. I mean, if you take newspaper, I mean, and not a lot, but a bit. If you take newspaper editorials, for example, yeah, there was a time there was a conspiracy of silence around. Geez, I'd say even five years ago. No newspaper editorial would ever vet the quality of another newspaper. They would yeah. never say, you'd never breed in business day in the morning, you know, the Sunday Times really a shit edition this weekend. Just not up to scratch, and actually it's been off its game for a month, and this is a problem. Just newspapers would not comment on each other. But one of the things, the byproduct of this kind of political factionism that's been introduced into our newspaper world with, you know, people with clear ostensible political agendas buying out whole brands is it's actually broken that cycle and you do find newspapers commenting on other newspapers and other journalists and other editors and putting pressure on them and I, and I think that's great now it might not be all perfectly done and there might be some other reasons why they're doing it but it's better to have that discussion than not however as you point out on the state of journalism in a general sense uh, yeah, I, I mean, I have deep reservations. And, I, and uh, let's also be fair that there are some parties which receive a kid glove treatment from the media and other parties which are held to a completely different standard. Um, I think that the EFF... Or individuals. Or individuals. Individuals. I mean, the EFF was for a very long time coddled and given all the space that they needed in, in print media, on radio, on television. Uh, they were heralded as being interesting because they certainly got the clicks, Right. Uh, the ANC has, uh, Cyril Ramaphosa has been treated extremely favorably by the media, uh, regardless of the fact that his record shows a, a, a quite ordinary and average, and I'm being generous here, um, contribution to the, to the policy. Dismal. It's dismal. dismal performance. I mean, 
you know, people people will go hard at like Helen Zilla and they'll hold her to account for a tweet. But, you know, we're still waiting to find out whether Julius Malema has stolen X amount or Y amount. Floyd's brother, um, which Pumi brought up the other day, uh, Brian Shivambu, is essentially one of the, the main players in the VBS scandal. We don't see huge stories about that. We don't hear people express And he's outrage. admitted. He's, he's admitted, admitted it. it. You know, how, how is there this, this, this extraordinary ability for the media in this country to behave with, with two different treatments, depending on who it is that they're talking about? Well, <clears throat> look, first of all, I, I absolutely agree with you. The, the reasons are complex, I think. I mean, you know, the way the Democratic Alliance is treated, for example, is a, I mean, that's as old as our democracy is. Um, people and I mean, I'll, really I'll say like that you, the, you have also been extremely critical of them, but I think you've been fair because you've been critical about a lot of people, not just the DA, but you've certainly laid into them as well. Yes, I try to cover all my bases. Um, <clears throat> yes, so I think, um, the, the reasons are complex and, and, and people don't, a lot of people in the media don't, to be honest, actually like the idea of an opposition too much. They, they, they like it in a kind of formal sense, the, the ability to be able to say to other countries, look, we're a modern multi-party democracy. We have an official opposition. We have a vibrant democracy, but they don't actually like it when it comes to the real contestation of power and something other than the ANC. They want a kind of form of racial nationalism. The ANC might not be ultimately the vehicle for them. It might be too corrupt, but then some other manifestation of that kind of ideological worldview is, is what's most desired. And parties like the DA are, are just seen as kind of recalcitrant throwbacks to some other, you know, deeply poisonous ideology from the West. But I, I just wanted to say one thing about one of the ways in which, and this is just an anecdote really, that I, f- I find this kind of bias um, most interesting is memory. I mean, you find one of the things that happens to the DA is that there is always context provided to commentary on big personalities. If ever there's a profile of, say, Helen Zilla uh, or some big figure in the DA that's that's currently the source of, of animus or discontent, there'll be reference to things they've done in the past. A tweet Zilla made about refugees or a disciplinary hearing or some scandal down the line. Right. That's never the case with, with names that are favorable, like Sora Ramaphosa. You, you never hear a story. Sora Ramaphosa, who once said there was no corruption at Nkandla, today yep. said uh, we must really fight corruption. That, that, it, every day is a 24-hour bubble with, with people that are in the favorable regime, and, and the whole world is the lens when you're, when you're in the opposition. I know why Pumi's smiling because she <laughs> she's been consistent about her criticism of of all the parties, but also of Cyril. Um, why do you think they have a love affair with Cyril, and why do you think they get away with with having this idea that the the ANC is the best vehicle for their kind of ideology? How do they, and and where does it come from? Is it in journalism schools, or is it the edit the editors of these of these publications, or is it just a laziness because it's easier to just print a press release and to not have to think about things? And and why criticize the government because it makes your life harder? Or a collection of tweets. Or a collection or just of tweets. a collection yeah. of tweets. We'll just we'll show you a couple of tweets. That's what we need to do. <laughs> well, I, I think it's just um the makeup of South Africa's particular belief system, you know, political belief system, which is a consequence of history and time and and it is what it is, but the bulk of, of South African citizens are more favorable to an ideological view that tends more towards the kind of uh, socialism more than liberalism. Mm. And, and, and that zeitgeist is reflected in the makeup of, of the media. Not that that's an excuse. You, you know, if you're a professional sure. media person, you should be able to rise above that stuff and be fair and objective. But, but that's the kind of environment generally. And, and, you know, so much moral authority was given to the ANC when it was elected in 94 and given everything it had done. It, it's lasted almost 25 years. I mean, it's only really breaking down over the last five or so. Yeah, I mean, it's been riding. On um, the, it's been riding on those fumes for some time. But it, but it it probably deserved a, a fair amount of our our generosity at the beginning because I think everybody was hoping that this would be a better way for South Africa, considering how absolutely abominable things were before then. But but they are still going on the smell of that oil rag. 
history has taught us that, right? Mm. All over the world, liberation yeah. movements. That's that's they kind of out. that's 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 the cycle, right? Whether it's it's in Israel or Zambia, or you know, Absolutely. liberation movements have this mm. cycle where they do get this moral upgrounded, and people think that that's who they are, and it takes them about twenty twenty years. To, for people to to wake up to the fact that mm, being, and they they struggle you yeah. know they they struggle to to make the transition of from a liberation movement that is anti a particular thing well, to becoming a governing party for everybody i mean you know, isn't they, they, isn't that almost like one of those abusive relationships you need you need to almost um have gone through some stuff before you can leave uh, that that abusive relationship i do want to just change tack quickly because God forbid we should have to talk about the ANC and corruption for the entire burning platform this morning. While we've got you here, Gareth, you said something interesting the other day, and we mentioned the EFF just now, which got me thinking about it. You said that the EFF is really a bit of a non-entity these days. Do, do you really well, believe that? You don't think that they've got any uh, contribution to make to the battle of ideas? Yeah, look, that was um, <clears throat> excuse me, that was a an article about COVID and the effect of COVID on South African politics, mm. uh, which of which I think the most acute effect was on the EFF. Um, I mean, what you had was this kind of bubble that appeared out of nowhere that was entirely evidence and um, data-driven, which was as much a shock for the ANC, I think, as it was for parties like the EFF. Um, the DA seems more interested in evidence and reason, so perhaps it was more of a natural fit for them. But... Um, you suddenly had this, um, you know, public consumed with statistics and evidence and, and graphs and, and making informed evidence-based decisions. Whether or not they were actually made is, is another question, but that's what people cared about and, and what the later data said. Yeah. Now, this is a language that was totally foreign to the EFF. I mean, it does not deal in evidence or data or statistics at all. It's totally a rhetorical populist party. Right. And it suddenly found itself with nothing to say. I mean, last year, it was shut out of the national debate to the point of silence. You, you, there were sort of six months where it literally just didn't seem to have a word to say about anything. And it was rendered somewhat irrelevant by COVID. It's fighting back now that things are opening up and it can get on the ground again and talk to people again. And, and you know, that's its forte. Um but there was a large period of time where it was just had nothing to offer. But also in a very schizophrenic way. Yes, well, it's always... But also I mean, in a very schizophrenic way, you know? No, that's... I mean, that kind of duplicity is hardwired to the EFF. I don't think you'll ever... I, I, I literally... I, I mean, I want to I'm write... I'm quite looking forward to seeing tomorrow. I'm quite what, looking forward to seeing what happens tomorrow because, you know, there is this much-touted... Last week, Wednesday, at their June 16 address, hmm. Julius Malema had a whole, like, I think, 45-minute rant about lockdowns and not following Cyril's rules yes. and we won't take it anymore. We demand vaccines. There's supposed to be a march yeah, tomorrow. But I, I, this is something, There's supposed this is to funny. be a march tomorrow and this is literally seven days after he had a huge rant against Andy Mutsecha and yeah. the fact that they wanted schools to shut down because it's you know, so on the one day, they want schools to shut down because COVID is running rampant and killing people. And on the other side, we're actually not going to be well, following any COVID protocol. We're, we're as, having a huge march. As Gareth says, they, they're used to posturing and rhetoric and, and nonsense. And, and they, that's why they can't keep their own ideas consistent. And, and I wouldn't be surprised if everyone who does join the EFF's march does get COVID. And, you know, then Julius will be even more afraid. I got the distinct impression, though. Um, at the start of this COVID outbreak that the EFF were the most frightened of all the parties. Like they were willing to do whatever. They were the ones who at the extreme end of the scale said, basically everyone needs to be uh, locked in, welded into their houses like the Chinese Communist Party did to people in Wuhan. And, and that they were very, very much afraid. And in fact, Julius has not gone very far off that, that train track since COVID broke out. And he's still the most afraid of all our politicians. I mean, you'd think it would be Mango Sutu Botelezi, who, who's 92 years old or whatever, and is probably, he's had COVID and he's been okay and he's been on TV and, you know, the funeral of King Goodwill Zuelitini and then the, the, the funeral of the Queen Mother and then he's busy making sure that the new king is sworn in. I mean, Mango Sutu Botelezi has been more active in the last 20-odd uh, months than Julius Malema has.
that tells you something. Yeah. Um, and before we get to Malema, I just, just to say, I, I mean, one of the things I love about Botelhezi is this, this, how he's come up with this title of traditional prime minister. Prime minister. Prime minister. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, you know, that it's also interesting about South Africa that you can just, you, you kind of, they're sort of informal regimes within a democracy, you know. There's yeah. a whole set of rules there with regards to the Zulu kingdom and hard work, so some of which seem to be made up on the spot, some of Absolutely. which I'm sure are long-standing yeah. and well-established. <laughs> yeah. But it's just stuff going on there that's a different universe completely. Anyway, back to... Malema, yeah, I mean, he, he, and I agree with you, I think he is scared. And one of the reasons is, you know, he's one of the biggest drivers of this, let's delay the election and and we Mm. can't have an election. And I don't know to what degree that's because they feel they've been hurt by the kind of silence that's followed COVID-19 and their inability to be on the ground and talk to people other than through television and radio. Um, One of the other things you must remember about Malema is that his – um, particular strategy at, at all times is to try and identify what the underlying fear or anxiety is that determines the national zeitgeist. Is it Jacob Zuma? Is it corruption? Is it COVID-19? And to mobilize around that issue. And so I think he did the sums, look, this is, and he's not wrong. I mean, it is a big fear for a lot of people. Um, this is the thing at the moment, and, and that's what I must get on the back of. Yeah, I think that's a very good point and a good analysis. He is always trying to find out where the fear is coming from because that's what he operates on. Absolutely. Yeah, right. fear and populism, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about um, former Minister Malusigi Gaba, who said he didn't know what the Guptas were up to. And just because he was friends with AJ Gupta, that didn't mean that he'd aided their actions or that he was complicit in any way. This after we've heard stories about you know bags of cash being taken in and out of uh, his boot and visiting the Guptas as friends. Are, are we really so stupid or does he think we're so stupid that we're going to buy that story? Or is he maybe so stupid that he actually did think that there was nothing nefarious going on here? He just thought that this is how government operates. I mean, his only school in government has been the ANC. Maybe this is what they teach you. Well, look, you've got to give it to the man. I mean, when it comes to holding the line, he's been, I mean, absolutely steadfast. Not not just on, on like, I disagree about dates and times or this amount. Or I don't, just None of this happened, he says. Everything my wife, ex-wife says is, is a lie. It's not true. I'm totally innocent. So, I mean, I, I can't wait to see whatever findings are made because it's, it's just not possible just from a practical point of view that none of this happened. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but the, the, the thing that's interesting about the mindset of, um, I think people that are involved in this kind of mid-level corruption where it's a lot of, less explicitly stated things. In other words, it's not, it's, you're not handed a fundamentally corrupt contract. What you do is you, you sure. renegotiate the boundaries of a contract or you accept yeah. some small amount of money or you some kind of more subtle influence. Hey, I mean, Nomvula Mokanyane did it for a box of meat. Um, it, it's also, it's, it's yes. really, these guys and girls are very cheap. Um, you don't have to spend yes. a huge amount of money. Bosasa realized that very early on and they only had to ratchet up their spending when it came to Cyril by the looks of things. Well, I, I mean, I think one of the consequences psychologically of, of being involved in this kind of middle-level corruption is that you do genuinely believe that you're not being corrupt because there's no fundamental point where you do something profoundly corrupt. It's subtle and incremental, and you fool yourself every step of the way that each step is not a problem in and of itself. It can be explained, and so therefore the whole picture can be explained, and, and nothing was ever amiss. And it's a, a kind of self-inflicted denial that you build into your own behavior to bypass all the kind of ethical constraints that if you took one incident in and of itself and said, you know, black and white, good and bad, right? no one would say I'm, I'm making the wrong choice here. But because you've kind of walked yourself into this way of behaving, yeah. it becomes indistinguishable from, from, from best practice. I've just got to throw in this comment because uh, you've got, a lot of fans who are also uh, listening to us this morning. Stuart Russell says, Gareth Van Onselen, thank you so much for your consistent and thorough commentary. Please keep it up. We enjoy following you. Um, you you are quite active on social media, I've seen. You you post quite a lot of stuff. It's not just your articles. You have things to say. Have you not been put off by how 
uh, puerile uh, Twitter's become? Have you not been uh, encouraged or, or have you not thought about the opportunities that await you in not being on Twitter anymore? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think I hate Twitter just as much as any rational person does. And my philosophy is really not to engage with Twitter so much as to just put stuff out there in a kind of abstract way. I try not to talk to people directly. Um, and in, I mean, I don't have conversations on Twitter and, and I try to make points. I don't always succeed, but in abstract more than right. personal stuff, you know, and, um, you, you talk to a kind of imagined audience out there rather than to actually your timeline, which is not nice. Um, Yes. Pumi and I, you know, again, I said just now we weren't <laughs> going to go back to corruption and then I brought up Malusi Gigaba, but it's in the news this week. Um, there's, there's always an update from Pumi about what's going on at Zondo. Um, do we have any idea of whether or not some of this stuff at Zondo is going to end up, we keep being told it will, is going to end up being Shamila Batoy's problem or do you think she's ever going to act? I mean, she's really just sitting there doing absolutely nothing. Sorry, is that for me, Gareth? Both of you, because I know it's Pumi's bug oh, there. Right. Not a week goes by where we don't uh, just refer back to Shamila Batoy, because I, I still can't believe that there's sheltered employment like that available. Gareth knows my views about Shamila. It's been this way since day one, when he and, and Canton told me to give her 100 days. <laughs> That's true. We did, we did try. <clears throat> Look, I do have some sympathy for her um, in that, I mean, I, I really think that office has been denuded of, of money, skills, expertise, and, and I think she inherited a case log that is just insane, yeah. not just in terms of stuff that wasn't acted on, but stuff that wasn't even enacted. In other words, there, there was never a case file considered or um, or, or a decision-making mechanism put in place to deal with an issue. Now, that's not to excuse what I, and I agree with you. I think things have been very slow in the, in the NPA. And, and I think there's a ton, politically speaking, of low-hanging fruit that she could have easily prosecuted. They might mm. not have been the biggest fish in the pond, which do require more substantive um, investigation. But, I mean, I think she could have made a massive impact by, by dealing with a whole lot of low-level stuff. Well, um, it's, it's a combination it's of, not gonna, of history. It's not going to happen, though, because she's there's no pressure on her to actually act in that respect. And although public outrage is is always growing, I don't think people understand how it all works. So we don't know who to blame. You know, this is why in, in this country it's so easy for politicians to turn us against each other, because we're not, we, we, we don't actually know how the Constitution set set things up and what these chapter what are they chapter 11 or chapter 9 I can never bloody remember um, what these institutions are there for and in terms of that's the public protector obviously but the public prosecution office these are the people who make a crime a crime they're the ones who decide this is criminal we're going to prosecute this and I mean if she's if she was in that office on her own Gareth she should have at least gone through you know about 50 files in all the time that we've been paying her to sit there even if it was just her. No, I, I, I agree. Um, yeah, look, w one of the problems is that, and I, and I mean, again, I don't, I don't want to say that she's been doing an excellent job. I think she, she hasn't. <laughs> or, or one of the tests of, of, of how effective she and how effective the Zoom administration is going to be in the long term, as opposed to outside the Zondo Commission universe, is when his own allies start getting implicated in corruption. And, and that's why, for me, I think Zueli and Kize is a very good litmus test. Right. Um, Zoro pauses real commitment to corruption. So far, and he's really resisted it. He's gone on special leave. We don't know what the consequences of, of any actual legal action against him are going to be. But, I mean, that's a real test for Ramaphosa because there's kind of – isn't it's all right to go after anyone who's implicated in anything that happened under the Zuma regime politically. That's fine. I think Ramaphosa and the ANC have all said this is fair game. And when you start going over people that you know are with Ramaphosa, that's when stuff gets interesting. And, and that, for me, is going to be the real test of – of you know his actual attitude to corruption. Well, on on an update uh, you know to do with that. Sorry, Pums, I just want to throw this in quickly. The uh, special investigating unit has been granted an order to freeze all accounts linked to Digital Vibes. That's the Zerilium Kize case. And I'm, I know it, it sounds extra cynical, 
But do you think that he's going to be a fall guy for things here? Because this is not the biggest amount of money that's gone missing. And in all those PPE scandals, we know that the president's actual spokesperson uh, had a had a, a husband who's now deceased, who was the main benefactor of some of those PPE um, amounts of money that were that were ferried away. Uh, that, sorry, ferreted away. Um, I'm interested in whether or not Zwenim Kize had outlived his usefulness, perhaps, to Cyril and the powers that be. And perhaps he's just, you know, low-hanging fruit to be taken out. Um, if if he represents what you say he represents, Gareth, then I think we're going to need to see more. Because just being put on, you know, on leave doesn't, to me, <laughs> equate to a decent enough uh, punishment for someone who's actually stealing during a crisis like Corona. No, absolutely. I think, I mean, you need to, you know, if, if, if he is a litmus test for the Ramaphosa's regime's administration's commitment to corruption, then you must see how far this goes. Is he actually going to be prosecuted or not? But I don't okay. think there's some kind of political conspiracy behind his, okay. um, reveal in this, in this scandal. I mean, I think Peter Louis Marburg is one of the best journalists in the country and, and this really hit the ANC out of left field. They didn't see this coming and, okay. he, and he'd put a lot of work into the story. And how he responds is therefore authentic and, and revealing. I think it hit the country out of left field. I don't think it hit the ANC out of left field. This man was the treasurer general mm-hmm. of the ANC for, for, for years. And if you go into uh, Peter Marisburg, where way. he comes from, where he comes from, if you go to Peter Marisburg and talk to the ANC people in Peter Marisburg on the ground, they have a very different story to tell about Zuelim Kiza and his level of corruption. So I think it hit the country out of the yes. field, but not the ANC. They've always known the kind of animal that he is. <laughs> yes. Well, they're sort of half in denial, half aware. Um, but, I mean, this thing about him being the Treasurer General is another thing. I, I, you know, talking about the memory hole, all the ANC's current financial woes, its bankruptcy, its inability to be able to pay its staff, its ghost workers on its role, Donors are drying up. This all would have had its roots in William Kiesa's tenure as as Treasurer General. Right. He did, no one no one seems interested in in putting the bill at his door, or holding to him account, or having an interview and saying, "Listen, how did you actually get a ton of ghost workers on your payroll? No. I mean, do you not do an audit? Are your books not put before an audit company? You know, and- it's just an example of just escaping." accountability and before we know it we're back in the corruption space all right let's turn our attention internationally i'd I'd like to know what you think of of what's going on in america at the moment and particularly we had that big summit you know it was much touted and much discussed summit between putin and joe biden which really was a a nothing it was more of a a press up for putin than than anything else if you ask me because it, it puts him on a level where he uh, he appears to be a, a major player, and I don't know that he is. You know, the Russian economy is not nearly as big as people think it is. It's smaller than Germany's. It's uh, it's equivalent almost to Italy's, um, and yet we don't we don't make much of a fuss of you know Joe Biden meeting with the Italian Prime Minister, whoever that might be, in any given week because they change at, at a rate of knots. Um, let's talk about New York, which is an interesting place. Um, it's a place I care very much about. New York is. A really interesting city. They've been run recently by, uh, run into the ground, some would say, by Mayor Bill de Blasio, who's just an absolute disgrace and has has made New York one of the worst places to live in America right now. Uh, it wasn't so bad just a short while ago with Bloomberg. It wasn't so bad before that with Giuliani. Um, it seems that Andrew Yang has dropped out. He was the one of the front runners, and the guy who is likely to win the the the, the title of mayor of new york at some point is eric adams who's an ex-police captain what's interesting about this to me and i'd like to hear your comments gareth and pumi is that this seems to fly in the face in a very blue state in a very democratic part of of america um, and in a city which is very woke it seems to fly in the face of the whole uh defund the police movement uh, if they're actually putting a former policeman in charge, what do people really want? And are the Democrats reading the tea leaves wrong? Um, well, Gareth, I'm going to defer to Pumi here because I know it's it's um, standard practice for people to have opinions on everything, but I'm afraid I know next to <laughs> okay. nothing about right, American Pumi. politics or New York, and I won't pretend to. Either. All right, Pumi, do you want to say something about that? And only because I, I mean, only because I've been reading up about it, and 
since the, the you know since the Donald Trump era have yeah. been extremely interested in in the way that Americans vote and and we are talking in South Africa talking about electoral reform and how we are voting and I think what we're seeing is just why winner takes all voting system doesn't quite work you know because then gareth you're saying are the democrats reading the tea leaves wrong what do the people uh, really want <clears throat> that's the problem with the winner takes all but system this isn't a win- right? this, this isn't a winner take all system it's first across the line no in new york they actually have a second round where you choose now you actually get to rank your candidates in in new york for mayor <laughs> so what they do is you put your first <laughs> choice you put your second choice and you put your third and what has happened is that Eric Adams has come up as most people's first choice, but he's also likely to come up as most of the people who didn't vote for him second choice. So it's an absolute, it's, this is a, if, if, if there was ever a mandate, a mandate for this candidate, a mandate, a mandate for this candidate, then it would be, we want to, we want more police. We don't want less police. We want the police. We feel safer with the police. This is what most New Yorkers are saying, even if it doesn't fit with the way that they present themselves to the world as being, you know, allies of Black Lives Matter, we want to defund the police. It almost seems like what's going on in reality doesn't match with the fantasy world that the Democrats create in their heads. That's what I'm. That's well, what I'm reading. Let, let me say this, Gareth. I think I mean, and this is a more of a grander comment than specific to New York or anywhere, but. I mean, I think one of the great tests of any democracy is its its ability to be able to adapt with time. Mm -hmm. And what you've seen in America is this kind of two-party system that's defined national politics, with the exception of the odd sort of third candidate runner for president, fundamentally in in almost every way in every state for, you know, a good four, three, four hundred years, whatever it is, 200 years. Um, what you're seeing now is both parties sort of informally splinter. I mean, the, 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 the conservatives have developed a kind of radical, mad, uh, far right, um, set of people. I don't think they're quite as organized as, as is happening in the Democrats who on their particular left hand side have, have an equally insane bunch of people in the other direction. And it's a real opportunity for some kind of middle ground party to form where people that are, you know, more rational and like-minded. I mean, if you think back to presidents like Roosevelt, it's actually very hard to tell if reading their speeches or their principles and stuff, whether, you know, he was a Democrat or a Republican. Um, there was, you know, there was such overlap on positions and he really owned a middle ground in a strong kind of way. Um, th- there surely is a market for for sort of, people to come together in a more rational centered middle ground at the well, moment. I, many, I don't know if it's ever going to happen. I think many people voted for Joe Biden because they thought he was that middle candidate. He was, he was, he was much more sensible, more experienced and less uh, irascible than Donald Trump was. But I'm afraid he, he seems to be tacking to the left of his own party. I mean, it's not him who makes the calls on how far something has to go. And, and I suppose uh, the spending is the only thing that the, that the Democrats can really notch up to having been any kind of success. They'd lost uh, a huge vote in the Senate yesterday, or it could even have been the day before, um, in order to change uh, the voting uh, patterns and the voting regulations in states, which would essentially hand those over to the, the federal government. And, and I suppose maybe they've reached uh, their zenith, the... The, the, the Democrats. Maybe this is the best they can do at this point. Maybe America is going back towards the center and they're not keen on the far left or the far right, as the politicians keep on telling us they are. Well, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, one of the one of the things that's fascinating about American politics is the myth that, um, you know, um, Republicans go to war and Democrats are bad on the economy. Mm-hmm. If you look historically, it's, it's actually the opposite. Democrats are actually the, the best at around. running the economy or generating growth. And uh, sorry, Democrats go to war the most often. Yeah. Um, and, and Republicans are actually the best at, um, running the economy off. God, I can't even remember which way around it is, but whatever. There's some kind of binary going on there. Right. The thing that's going to be interesting now is, is how Biden deals with these two things. He, he might, uh, you know, Trump's turned the table sort of by, at least as far as public perceptions go, by not going to any wars or having big, any big international conflicts. And the Democrats, unlike Obama and Clinton, who had very successful economic runs, have in, 
got a real inflation problem coming. I mean, oh, this huge. amount of money that's been pumped into the huge. system is going to have long-term consequences. We don't quite know what they are yet, but I think people are starting to get scared. And you could start to have a kind of, you know, the, the fundamental basis of, of most of, of a democratic offer is, is a functioning economy because you need all this money to do everything they want to do. Yeah. And if they hit some kind of big snag, that's going to be a real problem for them in a big way. And America, I mean, generally. Pums, you want to add anything to that? And did you have any comments on, on the Putin Biden summit before we wrap it up? Oh, so, you, you know, I mean, so boring. We just came out of G7. We just, all of that stuff is, are we shuffling chairs? I think it's almost like the big superpowers shuffling big chairs on what's really happening with their economies and who's well, in power. We earlier spoke about China and how everybody's turning a blind eye to China's atrocities. Mm-hmm. I think in, what's coming over the horizon is that we're not paying attention to China, but China's going to be wagging the dog in a big way. Well, I'm so glad you brought them up because one thing that has emerged is that the uh, the, the, the very comment that many people were, were trying to make on social media about the Wuhan lab and how that was the genesis of this whole problem that the world now sits with and the many, you know, the three odd million, four odd million people who've died of COVID um, have had to pay the price for. And, and China is a, it, it's not as well run and as well articulated as people think it, it is. And they've, they've tried to cover up their responsibility in all of this. Uh, do either of you have any particularly strong feelings? And this would have got you banned on social media a couple of months ago, but that China must pay for what they've done to the world. This is what uh, Donald Trump has been able to, to say, even though he's no longer on social media. He's put that message out very clearly. He said China must pay. Do you agree? Yes, China, and also according to Trump, they must pay for inventing global warning, warming. But you know, I suppose Trump's <laughs> broken clocks right twice, once a day, twice, twice a day, a day. twice. Um, <clears throat> look, I, I mean, the world, the scientific world, which has been revealed to have some serious problems on, yep, on its response to COVID, uh, COVID has been moving systematically towards this position that there, there was a leak, a lab leak. And I think you need the first thing you need to do is conclusively prove that. And, and if everyone's now on board that as a serious um, potential explanation for this, then let's determine that fundamentally. And then absolutely there must be consequences. I mean, I don't know what those are, and I don't know if the world's able to deliver them. The United Nations is, is pretty useless, and, and nothing seems to ever really happen at the Hague of any real no. consequence outside of Africa. Um and so I, I don't know what those consequences would be. It's very hard to put sanctions against China. I mean, they dominate the world economy. Um, but yes, they should be, in theory, right? if they were responsible. Yeah, Pums, uh, considering China's dominated our conversation this morning, I'm surprised that we uh, haven't been kicked off of, of YouTube. And I wonder if our podcast will even go out today. We'll have to see how deep uh, Xi Jinping's uh, ten- tentacles go. Gareth, it's always good to have you on the show. Thank you so much for your insights today. I encourage anyone to read your articles and your columns in the various publications that you publish for. And I hope that we have you back on the Burning Platform soon. Um, and, and please Thanks keep, so much. Keep, keep doing that, uh, that good work that you do in, in making us think and, and stretching us in terms of our, our understanding of politics in this country and particularly how complex it can be in places like the ANC. It's good to see you. And Pumi, always, always the best. We will see you on Friday, on Thursday next week. But I'll be here tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. bright and early with Sia to keep you entertained. And have a good Thursday, everybody. Cheers.